Thank you for listening to Hope Fellowship Church in Jaffa, New Hampshire. We're currently going through a sermon series called I Am. For these next few weeks, Pastor Jordan will be looking to scripture to answer the question so many of us face, who is Jesus? For generations, people have been debating this question. Was he a good moral teacher? Was he a revolutionary? Was he a figment of history's imagination? Was he a liar, a lunatic, or Lord? John's Gospel records the identity of Jesus by examining his very words. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hopejaffrey.org. Turn with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, we're going to be in this chapter today. I'm going to begin reading, and yeah, we'll just begin reading at verse 1 of John chapter 6. This is a lengthy chapter. I don't aim for the message to be a lengthy uh, message. We are simply talking about the, uh, the first I am statement of Jesus, I am the bread of life. So that's going to be what we're looking at today. This is the second message in our new series on the I am statements of Jesus, seven statements that he makes. Last week, we looked generally at the big idea of the I am who I am, Jesus's, uh, God's name that he gives for himself in Exodus, and then how Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And so we looked at those two statements, really at the eternality of God, the very f- fact that we exist here in this place In this space, in time, and matter, all the existence of all that there is because God is. And that's what we talked about with God's name. I am who I am. It is the fact, the only thing that can possibly say that there is anything in this world is because God is. And that's how he communicates his eternal nature. And Jesus then likewise communicates that eternal nature as well as he is the second person of the Godhead, the Trinity. And so today we get honed in more. I guess you could say the lens was really wide or it was very wide out and now we've honed in a little bit more when Jesus says today, I am the bread of life. So we're gonna look at that. The booth's gonna follow me along today on the scriptures here. I'm not sure if I'm gonna be able to read all 71 verses for you today. I do want to give context though. We're not looking at all of these verses today but I think it's important because today we're talking about Jesus' bread of life discourse. He gives a sermon on the bread of life, how he is the bread of life. But he does that in context. And I think it's important for us to understand the context. The context is the feeding of the 5,000, a story that many of you probably learned in Sunday school and are familiar with. So I wanna begin with that because he feeds bread to 5,000 and more individuals. And then he speaks about how he is the living bread. All right, so I think it's important to recognize the context before we look at that. So just, I might skip around a little bit, but John 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Then verse 3 says, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing a large crowd that was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, hey, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew that what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread, 200 years, all, the, all, these, all this money, even if you had all this money worth of bread, would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, 
There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said to him, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in this place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. That's just the men, many would say it could be upwards of 10,000 or more people. So Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. Gather up everything. Don't waste anything. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had, been, who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed the prophet, they say, this indeed the prophet, not a prophet, but the prophet, who is come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. He often did this throughout this time. He would dis- withdraw into solitude and get alone. In verse 16, another extraordinary story you're familiar with. It says, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, started across the Sea of Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough, and because of a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. And he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. And when they were glad to take him onto the boat, and immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. Jesus walks on water. And in the other accounts, it speaks of Peter getting out of the boat, these kinds of things. Verse 22, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. So they're trying to put two and two together here. Verse 23, and when other boats from Tiberias came near to the place They had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boat and went to Capernaum, and here's this phrase, I love this, seeking Jesus. So in general, they are seeking Jesus, but why is it that they're seeking Jesus? He's about to point that out. Verse 25, and when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me. You get that? You are seeking me. Not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves, meaning because your bellies are full, Verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes or goes bad, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which is the Son of Man that will give you. For on Him... God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do? What other signs? Like, show us more stuff. Come on. That we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Verse 31, our fathers ate the man in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you, now get this phrase, the true bread from heaven. 
Verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And verse 35, the key verse in the whole passage, verse 35, Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you, believe, you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews, when there was a response, verse 41, the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they grumbled among themselves, verse 42, they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? Like, I know they're his dad, right? Um, I know whose boy he is, right? He, whose father and mother we know. How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come down to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, he who has seen the Father. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. He's doubling down on his statements. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Verse 49, your fathers ate the man in the wilderness, and what happened? They still died, <laughs> right? And verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. Verse 51, he says it again, I am the living bread that came down from heaven, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. And he starts doubling down on statements that would be almost startling into the aggression of which he says it, and it causes the Jews to respond. Verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, and he doesn't soft pedal it, like, let me try to explain it. He doubles down again. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. What a strange statement that is, right? Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum, and it goes on. We'll finish that ending part here towards the conclusion of the message. Let me pray. Father, thank you for these words. Would you encourage our hearts? Teach us what these mean. Explain to us. God, the great depths and mystery of what it means that you are our living bread. Thank you for that. Teach us, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. I know that was a lengthy passage for me to read, but in Timothy, it does, I'm always reminded, uh, Paul expressly tells Timothy, until I come, 
Do not neglect the public reading of the scripture. And I always love that. There's a simplicity to the job of a pastor or, or a church that when you come to church, in some manner, shape, or form, there should be public reading of the scripture. And so I know sometimes it's hard to pay attention to 60 verses or so in a row, but the storylines all interconnect as you see John is building a case for what it means to be the bread of life and to find true satisfaction. So I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you've, where you've come upon something that you were anticipating with great excitement. Uh, and you finally got that thing that you were looking forward to and you kind of asked yourself, well, that was a little bit underwhelming, right? You know, or was that it, you know? Or maybe at the end of the sermon, you're like, really, was that it? You know, okay, hopefully not. Um, sorry, but this idea of feeling that you might be looking forward to, maybe it's uh, whatever achievement or goal in life, or maybe you're looking forward to the release of some movie that you've been looking forward to and you finally watch and you're like, well, that wasn't all that was cracked up to be. You're kind of left empty at the end. Uh, you finally thought if, as, as, long, as, as soon as you got that promotion in life, you know, that would really fix all your problems and you would feel fulfilled, right? <laughs> and we'd be content. But very often we have and are left as human beings, we are left often asking, maybe internally, is that all there is in life? We're often let down by a variety of things. I know sometimes people will build up a restaurant Say, this is the best restaurant they have ever been to, right? And you go to the restaurant and you're like, well, that was pretty good, but I wouldn't say the best restaurant I've ever been to, right? That's maybe not the best, right, in the world. And, or you reach a point in your life, potentially, I'm not there yet, but a midlife crisis, right, we'll just say. And all of a sudden you're like, is this all my life has amounted to? I need to now go buy a boat and a car and change jobs and figure out, you know, all these things that now I need to change my life drastically because there's only a little bit of time left and I've got to change everything be able to get something out and find that satisfaction that we're all craving for, right? Well, Tim Keller talks about this in his book, Making Sense of God. I want to read a portion of it for you. He says, we do not only want a satisfaction that lasts longer, but also one that goes much deeper. He says this, in 1969, the singer Peggy Lee recorded the song, Is That All There Is? written by Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller and based on an 1896 Thomas Mann novella called The Disillusionment, where the woman speaking in the song tells us about being taken as a 12-year-old to the circus. And it was called The Greatest Show on Turf. Uh, I'm sorry, not on turf, on earth, right? That was the uh, Super Bowl, right, with uh, the Rams. You know what I'm talking about, Patriots and Rams, right? The Greatest Show on Earth, all right? And as she watched it, the song says that she had a feeling that something was missing. She didn't know what. And when it was over, I said to myself, is that all there is to a circus? Later in the song, she says that she felt so very much in love with the most wonderful boy in the world. And then one day, he left her, and she thought she'd die. But I didn't, she says. And when I didn't, I said to myself, is that all there is to love? And at every turn... Everything that should have delighted and satisfied her, turned out it didn't. Nothing was big enough to fill her expectations or desires. There was always something missing, though she never really quite knew what it was. Everything left her asking, is that it? So every stanza of her life, like the song, goes back to the same refrain. In the song it says, is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends... Then let's keep dancing. 
Let's break out the booze and have a ball if that's all there is. The lack of any deep and lasting satisfaction drives her to joyless partying as we gradually discover that everything we look forward to in life is really not all that fulfilling. We become less able to look forward to anything with a more numb, jaded, cynical, or even worse. The woman speaking in the song realizes that her listeners might wonder why she doesn't just commit suicide. And she predicts that the experience of dying will be every bit as disappointing as life has ever been. So there's no really reason to hurry it. She says in the song, I know that you must be saying to yourself, if that's all the way she feels about it, why doesn't she just end it all? Oh, no, not me. I'm in no hurry for that final disappointment because I know just as well as I'm standing here talking to you that when the final moment comes and I'm breathing my last, I'll be saying to myself, is that all there is? I don't know if you've ever gotten to that point in life of that extreme, but I think at many times in life we find places of disillusionment where all of a sudden everything that we were aiming for seemed to not really truly fulfill leaves us craving something that we search for. You see this often with elite athletes where they finally win the Super Bowl or they finally get to that achievement of success and these win the gold medal and you've lived your whole life for that and it was exciting, it was wonderful, but what's next? As the Rolling Stones would say, I can't get no satisfaction, right? We're looking for it, we can't find it. And C.S. Lewis says in his BBC radio talk on hope, he says, most people, if they really learn how to look into their hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be exactly had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they'll never keep their promise. Lewis says, the longings which we arise in us when we first fall in love or when we first think of some foreign country to travel to or first take up some subject that excites us, or the longings uh, which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not speaking of what would ordinarily be called an unsuccessful marriage or a bad trip or so on. I'm speaking of the best possible ones imaginable. There's always something we grasp that in the first moment of longing that eventually fades away into reality. The spouse may be a good spouse. The scenery had been quite excellent. And it turned out to be a pretty good job. But the it had evaded us. You ever felt that? The it had evaded you. I'm reminded of that video that gets thrown up on reels at times. That raccoon who's in like a zoo or something. And he goes and steals a whole bunch of cotton candy. Have you seen this? And he runs back with this cotton candy. And as raccoons do, they go to the little pool of water and they always wash their food. And he takes the, the cotton candy and you can see him so excited. And he drops the cotton candy in the water and then it dissolves and he doesn't know where it goes. And he's like left. And so he goes back trying to get more and he keeps bringing it to the water and it's just gone. It's evaporate. You're so excited about this offering of excitement. You put it into the water and it's poof, vanished. It's dissolved away. We're left quite unsatisfied. And so I think for many of us, this feeling of emptiness, this feeling of lacking, this feeling of what is it that we are needing in life? Tim Keller also says this, the Christian view of satisfaction, it ends up to avoid the pitfalls of the ancient strategy of tranquility through detachment. Tranquility through detachment, kind of like how that song had gone. If we can detach from reality and not care, then who 
then who cares? Doesn't matter. There's nothing, so just do whatever you want. Tranquility and peace through detachment. Or what's most often sold to you in America and the Western world, which is the modern strategy of happiness through acquisition. The more you get, the better it is, the happier you'll be. The one who dies with the most toys wins, right? Okay, maybe not. So it both explains and resolves, he says, the deep conundrum of our seemingly irremediable discontentment. Jesus doesn't just say, here is the dispenser of bread. Here I am a dispenser of bread. Look, over there is the bread. Jesus tells us, I am the bread of life. It's not found in a location or a thing, but it's found by going and following, as Sam was saying, a person. We follow Jesus. We seek his kingdom. But how do we do this? And that's probably the thing I want us to look at in these last couple of minutes, this concept of what John 6 presents to us. How do we, how do we achieve? How do we get this bread of life? Do we just need to do more? Or what does this mean? Did Jesus gives us extreme statements of taking and eating of him. And I think it's in that phrase of Jesus doesn't tell us he's a dispenser of bread. He tells us he is the bread. Take, this is my body, which is given for you, the word says. And so we look at this idea in John 6 that's presented to us. The basic bread is point one here. This idea of really, in a sense, that Jesus feeds the 5,000. He, he dispenses this bread in a, in a manner very similar to the way Moses dispensed bread in the Old Testament. This is a purposeful um, illustration for us, for us to see that Jesus is the greater Moses. If you were to go back and kind of study through John 6 and just pick out all the different connection points between Jesus and Moses, you'll be blown away. Jesus comes up on top of a mountain on verse 3 of John 6. He sits down and he dispenses this new law to the people, almost like Moses went up to the mountain and comes down and dispenses this law through his teaching. This occurs at Passover. When was the first Passover? In Exodus, when Moses leads them out in the Passover of the death angel and the people are spared. This occurs then in John 6 at Passover. They're out in the wilderness in a desolate place. He leads them into that place. He feeds them with manna. He also parts the seas in a different way, but he exemplifies his power over the water and over nature. Jesus then, after this moment, walks on the water and calms the storms, just like Moses, through God's power, parted the Red Sea and rescued the people of God. And then he gives manna, this manna that is provided for them as they even talk about and they make connections to the manna that was given in the wilderness for the people. Jesus says, I give you manna. But I'm not giving you temporary partial manna that will uh, kind of rot and, and eventually pass away and will leave you hungry and angry for the manna in the next day, right? I give you eternal manna because I am the manna. I am the bread. And this is what he says, that this manna, this bread that I give is like the manna in the Old Testament. It's given in abundance. If you see in John 6 verse 12, it speaks about how they had so much left over. They had so much left over. There's all this food left over. What do we do with it? We'll just throw it aside. No, in this abundance, we take care of it. There's nothing wasted. Of how my friend Pastor Ben Emberly spoke here a few weeks ago. 
And he spoke about the God of abundance. Do you remember that? Who dispenses really and gives out abundant joy. And I love that word. It stuck with me, this idea of abundance. John 10.10, I came that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly. Here, John, in John 6, Jesus is giving out abundant amounts of food to the point where the passage says, everyone had their fill. You ever been to a meal? Maybe there wasn't enough food to go around, and you were left unsatisfied, right? Your stomach was still hungry. Maybe right now you're thinking about the lunch you're about to have, right, in a few moments, that feeling of being hungry, you're, you're desiring to be satisfied, that same feeling, we find it fulfilled in Jesus. We find it fulfilled in the bread that he supplies. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I shall have no lack. Consider that. The fact that when we follow Jesus, we shall have no wants unsatisfied. Nothing truly good when we partake of the true food and the true bread will we be left feeling, oh, man, that wasn't, that really wasn't what I was expecting. Man, I wish it was so much more. It's when we truly come to Jesus that we will be filled. We will have our desires, our cravings, our hunger satisfied. This is the promise of God through Jesus Christ and the bread of life. Nothing is wasted he gathers up the leftover fragments that may be lost. He gathers them in and he takes it in. Very similar to Moses in the Old Testament. They weren't to gather more of the manna than they needed. They were to gather what they needed for that day. And the leftover, they were not to gather in abundance for that leftover would actually mold and have worms growing in it as it says in Exodus. I think it's Exodus 16 that speaks about that. So they were to take in this principle of of, of the God of abundance, he will give you all that you need, but not more than you need in some ways, where he keeps you trusting in him, trusting in him that he will supply all your needs. Our Father who art in heaven as we pray, give us this day our daily bread. Pray that every day. Give me what I need for today. The Psalm says, or I think it's in the prophets, I can't remember exactly, uh, give me neither poverty nor riches, give me everything I need. Hey, Lord, help me to have that sense. Not that we detach and we don't care about the bread and God's just gonna get to sit on the couch and he's gonna give me everything I need. No, no, no. There's still a sense of going out and gathering of the manna. There's also not this acquisition that the manna is all mine and I'm gonna keep it all for myself and you can't have it because I need more than you. That happiness through acquisition, that's not gonna happen. It's a contentment through faith in God's power to provide. That is a principle for life. That is a, a principle for so many aspects of our life. When we come to Jesus, he will provide. The problem is when you come to Jesus, careful that you're not asking for the wrong bread. You're not looking for the wrong bread. There was a story from a few days ago where a, a friend of mine who's a, a celiac, he accidentally had a cookie that was gluten-filled. Oh, he thought it was gluten-free, right? What what happens in that case? It is not good, okay? He uh, had a very violent evening, and uh, it was not good. He had a bread that he thought was gluten-free, but the bread was not, and he partook of it, and it caused much pain, let's say, right? 
And so it's this sense of the wrong bread that, oh, it looks so good. It seems to promise so much, but it causes much pain and sorrow on the other end, right? (laughs) Okay, I'll just leave it at that. But this idea that we come to Jesus wanting something that's so attractive and wonderful, but we're not actually wanting what it is we truly need. Jesus says, you guys are hungry for the wrong bread. You guys are looking for the wrong thing. Remember how he said in verse 25 and 26, hey, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In a sense, he's kind of chiding them. You want to see more signs. You want to be entertained. You want your tummies filled. You want your temporary needs met above all else. I'm here offering you something eternal, and you're more worried about your stomach being filled today. And you're like, yeah, those, those people, could you believe them, right? It doesn't know how we do it when we read the Old Testament. Man, those Israelites, they complained a lot. I'm good, I'm not like them, right? You know, I'm really happy. And like, wait a second. I, I, I kind of tend to see myself in that too, right? Lord, give me what I need right now, what I think I need right now. And God says, I'm trying to give you myself, I'm trying to build your faith. Come to me, put your burdens on me. You know, you may be heavy laden, but come to me. For those who come to me and take my yoke upon me, their burden is light. And it's this aspect of coming to Jesus, following him, not seeking to get something that we can get out of him. And so often I wonder if that's what it is. God, if you do this for me, then I will believe in you. We make deals with God. God, if you just, then I fill in the blank. And I wonder if at times we are just like these people here in this place. We want Jesus to come and entertain us and fill out our list of our supposed needs. And we're not really willing to submit under his leadership and under his power and under his wisdom to know our actual needs. Possibly what it is that we need most often is a time of spiritual growth and maturity to be able to trust him more in a time of scarcity. And you say, well, God's a God of abundance. Yes, but he often uses those times of supposed scarcity to trust in the abundance that he has in heavenly storehouses. (laughs) He is a cattle on a thousand hills. He is more than you can ever imagine. He is a God that we spoke about early who can do more, immeasurably more than you can even ask or think. That is our true God. And yet the thing that he provides to us ultimately is this eternal life, this true bread where moth and rust cannot corrupt, where thieves cannot break in and steal, for this is the kingdom of God that we seek, not a temporary kingdom that can be risen up and fall down. And so he says in verses 32 and 33, the true bread is what I'm offering you. Verses uh, 32 Moses gave them a bread from heaven, yes, called manna, but they ate it, and they were still hungry, and one day they died. I give you true bread, true, real, true bread, a bread that doesn't perish, but a bread that comes down from heaven that gives life into the world. It is a bread that he says, the bread of life. Your fathers ate this in the wilderness, and they died. I give you bread that when you eat of it, you will live forever. This is similar to Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. You want water because you need water today and you're thirsty. I'm offering you a water that is called a living water. 
It is a water that is, t- and she's like, well, where do I get this water? This sounds amazing, right? And he says, hello, I'm talking to you, right? He does the same thing in a different way here. Hey, I, I'm offering you a bread that is like something you can never even imagine, because that's what they say in verse 34, sir, give us this bread always. Like, where can we buy this bread? Wh- which grocery store do we have to go to? Who's growing this bread? I would love to get some of this bread, right? And he says, you're looking at it. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the living bread, verse number four here on this outline we're working through, this living bread. I am the bread. And he highlights this. We read through it, verses 35 through 40, he says it, 47 through 51, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. He says it over and over and over. It's very clear. You can't miss it. It's almost as if like Throughout history, you can find different storylines of people looking for a fountain of youth. You ever heard of that myth, that story? It's people, Ponce de Leon, these, uh, these, research, uh, these explorers like Vasco da Gama and Bartolomeu Diaz, these men who went, got into ships and literally sailed into the unknown, exploring places that no European had ever been. An extraordinary courage that took these explorers in these places. And ma- many of them were fueled by uh, storylines of a character, maybe you've heard of him, called Prester John. If you have a world history class, sometimes they'll talk about. It was this mythical character in U- European folklore. Uh, uh, this person called Prester John, that in his great kingdom in the Orient, or in his great kingdom in the far beyond, you'll meet Prester John. And Prester John has the keys to eternal life. And it's in Prester's John kingdom that there's a fountain, a fountain that springs forth with living water, that when you take of that fountain, you will never grow old. It's a fountain of youth. And legend goes that some of the ones who landed in America went hunting around in Florida, supposedly, for this uh, fountain of youth. And that's why everybody retreats down to Florida when they're getting, okay, sorry. I, that was a joke just made up on the spot. Did not have that written in my notes. I think those are better. I'll take note of that later on, not to plan jokes ahead of time, just let it go. Um, but no, seriously, this Prester John, this fountain of youth, we're always, and out through the centuries that people have been talking about different things, Indiana Jones movie or whatever it might be, whatever movie today, you might find a, a way to find this eternal, everlasting youth. And Jesus is like, look, I, I've been telling you about it for centuries and millennia, I am the bread of life. Jesus offers something very different because he doesn't offer you something. He offers you someone. And that's what always stands in separation from every other religion on the face of the planet. It's not, hey, go do this, but hey, believe in him. Christianity stands out as a stark contrast to other religions in the sense that this is saying, I invite you into a personal relationship, not just a structural organization of religion. I want you to get to know someone, not just to partake of something. We get to know the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus pulls no punches in the statements of who he is. I am the bread of life. You literally take of my body and my blood. And that's where the literally becomes very challenging. What does that mean? The the Jews are... Are, are blown away to this point where they begin grumbling about this. This is a hard saying, they says. I'm not sure if I can believe this. And so in a sense, he's pushing them to the point of faith. It, are you really believing this to the point where you're getting over this offensive nature and you're saying, yep, I believe and I'm going to follow you no matter what? Because you would think Jesus is actually about to operate in one of the worst church growth strategies known to mankind, Okay. 
We're about to read about it in a moment here. If you turn with me in verse 60, if Jesus was trying to grow a megachurch, he's, um, he's not really doing a great job. You're going to see what I mean here. Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, this is verse 60 of John 6, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Jesus knew from the beginning who was there and who did not believe and who it would be that would betray him. Verse 65, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Verse 66, and this is it. After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So they had a big crowd. You could say about a crowd like this. And some of you just get up and leave. You can't handle this, right, is what he's saying. They no longer walked with him. They said, I, I can't take this. I, I, this is not what I signed up for. If this is it, man, I, I don't think I'm in on this, right? And so they no longer walked with him. And then who's left? After the dust settles of the crowd leaves, verse 67. So Jesus said to the 12. <laughs> There's the 12 disciples still there. The ragtag group that he's been working with so far. And he says a question to them. Do you this is what Sam read earlier. Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And that's usually where I end. But I love what he says in verse 69 that kind of hit me at this time when I was studying it this week. That's where I usually end with this, well, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Then he says this. And we have believed. And, and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I love that statement of faith that I pray you can say as well. If I were to ask, do you want to go his way as well? Do you want to leave as well? Do you hear the words of what Jesus says? I am the only way of salvation. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. I am the door and the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. I am who I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus says this to you today. And we're left within our heart to answer those words of Peter, to say within us, do we believe this? Do you say, where else would we turn? Lord, you have the words of eternal life. And yes, we have believed. <laughs> and yes, we have come to know and yes, I believe that you are the Holy One, the I Am, the Lord of God. You are God. For the crux of the matter comes down to the fact that Jesus is, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, never have to hunger. His eternal longings for eternalness, this salvation that we all long for, will be satisfied in him. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst that thirst that we have for something more beyond the doldrums of life, something more. What is that it that we're missing? That is what we're looking for, that satisfaction, that contentment. Jesus says, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
Because the whole purpose of the book, the whole purpose of the matter is in John 20, verse 31, that these things are written to you that, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So that you can come to anything that you face in life and you say, is that all there is? And in your heart, you can say, no, it's not all there is. There is far much more. And we're just waiting for the day of his return when he answers all of those questions and longings and aspects of disillusionment. And he answers that call with himself because the Bible says that one day we will live in a place where heaven and earth will converge. A new heaven and a new earth. The the holy city of Jerusalem will descend out. And what does the Bible say in Revelation 21? The dwelling place of God is with man. In the end of Ezekiel, it says the name of that holy city is that the Lord is there. The answer to all of our longings and our discontentments and our feeling of dissatisfaction, the, the reason we run to habits of destruction, habits that twist and numb our thoughts and minds from the feelings of disillusionment and discontentment with life, the reason we look to those things is we don't have the faith to see that one day, the very presence of God will answer all of those feelings of longing that we have. And that is possible right now for you to live and walk in the Holy Spirit of God, to trust Him and to allow His Spirit to fill you in such a way that you find contentment with wherever you find yourself today because you have all that you need because the Lord is your shepherd. You shall have no wants. There is nothing we need Give me Jesus. Take the whole world. Give me Jesus. What would it offer you? If you, get, if you got the whole world, if I offered you a billion dollars, if I offered you the entire world, but you were to lose your own soul, what would you have then? If you have this, the bread of life, you'll never hunger and you'll never thirst. You will be satisfied completely in Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father, we come to you today and we ask God that you'd be glorified in our humble attempt to place ourselves at your feet. We bow before you and we give you the honor and glory today. Lord, you are worthy. You are are all that there is. Thank you, God, for not leaving us alone, but reaching out and calling us to yourself. Thank you, Lord, for providing us life. Thank you, Lord, for providing us yourself. Help us to follow you into this relationship, a deepening of that already existing in many here. Possibly for some, coming to the first realization of a relationship with you is actually possible for them. But I pray that you would help us to believe, that we would remember the good bread, the true bread that we partake of, that we eat of, that fills us with life. God, we praise you and thank you for all of these good things. In Jesus' name.